You're listening to The Process Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Robinson, and my goal is to bring you meaningful, applicable, and interesting information from successful college students. The tips, tricks, and habits revealed by these young adults will help you learn to bring your life to the next level. So without further ado, let's get started. I just know we're getting closer, 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 closer than I ever been. Yeah, I used to dream about showing the world what I dream about. To get a mic my whole life, I thought to be the mouth. It's folly to measure your success in money or fame. Success is measured only by your ability to say yes to these two questions. Did I do the work I needed to do? And did I give it everything I had? Cheryl Strayed. Strayed. Straight. Straight. Okay. Uh, The next quote is, nobody's going to do life for you. You have to do it yourself. Whether you're rich or poor or out of money or raking it in, the beneficiary of ridiculous fortune or terrible injustice. And you have to do it no matter what is true. No matter what is hard. No matter what is unjust, sad, sucky things befall you. Self-pity is a dead-end road. You make the choice to drive down it. It's up to you to decide to stay parked there or turn around and drive out. Cheryl Strayed. That quote is brought to you, those two quotes are brought to you by another outstanding guest. Currently earning her master's degree in environmental science and policy, Sarah Maloney was extremely active within her college community as an undergraduate. She began her college career as a college board student representative her sophomore year, which continued throughout her senior year. There she handled cases made by students on exceptions made to academic policy and academic integrity. Additionally, during her senior year, she was chair of the Student Life Committee within the Clark University Student Council and also served as the senior class representative. After a bad concussion her sophomore year, Sarah became a peer mentor for accessibility services and joined the Clark Student Support Network. As an intern, Sarah has worked in the Worcester County District Attorney's Office as a victim advocacy intern and worked as an assistant team leader in the Maine Conservation Corps within the AmeriCorps program. She also has been a PLA or peer learning assistant for classes such as environmental ethics, marine biology, and trial advocacy. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, how are you? I'm doing good, thank you. Thank you for coming on today. Yeah, so what's your story up until this point? So, I always start this question when I grew up in Maine, because that's really important to me for a lot of different reasons. I grew up in Maine, and Maine's great. I love Maine, but for college, I wanted something a little different. I wanted to have years living in a different environment, so I came down to Massachusetts, which is definitely a different environment. That really made me appreciate growing up in Maine and how lucky I was to be able to do that. At Clark in undergrad, I got really involved with a lot of different things for, I'm not even really sure why. Um, now I'm in the fifth year program in environmental science and policy, so I'm getting my master's in in accelerated degree program so I still have a lot on my plate and I won't be done till May that's my story in terms of timeline so what's so different about Massachusetts in terms of Maine because to me they both seem like New England states uh, they don't seem that different there are worlds of difference in those two hours uh, that it takes to drive between them in Maine there's definitely at least in my perception a greater sense of community definitely a smaller population can't, when I'm in Maine with my parents, I can't go to Hannaford without my dad recognizing someone in the dairy aisle that he coached in the Little League in 1994. So it's definitely a lot tighter knit. To me, it's also really important because 
they're a lot more, I'm, I'm an outdoor person, like people say indoor cat, I'm an outdoor person. Um, there are a lot more opportunities for hiking, camping, backpacking up in Maine than there are in Massachusetts, at least in my experience. Um, what else about Maine? Maine, I think there's just a certain spirit about it, a certain independent spirit that people take care of their own, but they also work really hard to take care of themselves. And people do that in Massachusetts too, I'm sure, but I've had more experience with that in Maine. Yeah, let's clarify that. Uh, I also go to Clark University, and it's in Worcester, which is vastly different than especially what would probably be considered rural Maine. Yeah. And um, so Sarah isn't speaking for uh, the entire state of Massachusetts, but rather just a small city of Worcester, which is definitely not really community-oriented, not really community-oriented, um, especially when compared to rural Yeah, Maine. I mean, Worcester is the second biggest city in Massachusetts, and I... I this year, I'm commuting from a smaller town a little further outside the city, and there definitely is more community there. Um, I just have a lot of friends and family up in Maine that I am really connected to, so I miss that a lot. Yeah, especially, you say it's close-knit, but it's like so much of a bigger state. Do you think it's just towns in general I think that are close-knit? Fewer people. Um, a lot smaller population density. That makes sense. So... It sounds like, you know, the outdoors are really important to you, and you said you went camping before we, you know, turned the microphone on. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your connection to the environment and why it's so important to you? So I think that has become more and more important the older I've gotten and in the way the world is moving in terms of technology. If you, I think if you asked all of the people on Clark's campus when the last time they it was when the last time was that they went without a cell phone. You'd be hard pressed to find anybody who had gone without a cell phone for more than two days. I mean, people can't let the thing out of their hand, let alone go without it for a few days. So, to me, when I go camping and hiking where you don't even have phone service, it's a big refresher, it's a big pause, it's a big step back to be able to reset, lose that distraction, because it is a distraction. When you see people in public just flipping through Facebook, Instagram, whatever. I mean, you do need to talk to your family and connect with them, but removing yourself from the way we're constantly surrounded by technology is really refreshing to me. Yeah, sometimes I feel like there's a giant dichotomy in terms of technology because, um, you know, social media is intended to bring us closer together and foster connections, while today it becomes a distraction from those around you. So it seems to be cutting off the connections from your immediate surrounding while superficially fostering connections that you may have made in the past or your parents or people from your hometown, people you've had on different teams, groups, things like that. So definitely an interesting thing to be talked about. Yeah, I mean, I'm really grateful that yesterday I could pick up my phone and call my dad, even though my dad's up in Maine. That's something that is relatively new to in the span of time that I can pick something out of my pocket and just call somebody who's 120 miles away. But that's good. That's a good part of technology. But just the, the fact that people, when they go out to dinner and spend money on, essentially when you go out to dinner, you're spending money on spending time together in a new environment, or in a different environment, essentially. Um, but having that ability to step back and actually have to connect to people on a person-to-person -person level, not a Facebook comment and an Instagram like, is really refreshing to me. Yeah. I actually was talking to somebody the other day, and they're, you know, studying addictions in people, and I told them, you should study cell phone addiction, because I really believe, I agree with you, I uh, think that people are 
mostly to attach to their phones? Do you think it's a, a human addiction? Like people are actually addicted to that screen? I don't know enough about the science to say definitively one way or the other. I really don't. I do think that there are people that are highly dependent on them. Um, and I think that's kind of the nature of the beast. When I'm at school, I, I am attached to my phone. You're getting an email every couple hours from a professor, from a classmate, from the university telling you something you need to know, which is great that we have that communication platform. But sometimes it is good to take a step back and be away. Yeah, and I've heard it from multiple people at this point that unplugging yourself from technology is really a way to, to seemingly get ahead. It almost drains you being attached to everybody all the time. Um, moving forward a little bit, it seems as though you, you mix law classes with uh, an environmental you know, major or minor. Do you have a reason for doing that? Going into law is something I've toyed with on and off throughout my undergraduate, continuing to probably last night when I was thinking about it. It's just a big investment in terms of time and money to yeah. be definitive about. I don't think I've made a decision yet. At one point I was registered to take the LSAT, and then I was a little scared and they don't get it's not like the SAT where they average your scores. They just, um, or excuse me, on the SAT they pick your highest scores. Okay. On the LSAT, any attempt is recorded, so there's no going back. And what do you find attractive about law? The challenge, the ability to be doing something in a field that's constantly changing that doesn't just change in the long term in terms of what the law is or how the law is applied, but even in the short term of the tasks you deal with every day. So I'm debating with myself whether I can find a similar challenge in a field that doesn't cost me three years of time and tens of thousands of dollars. If you were to go into law school, would you like to be making decisions on policies about environmental protection? Is that kind of what you wanted to do with it? I don't really know. I talked to, during my internship, you know, like in a lot of internships, you get some professional guidance, and I talked to a couple people who said, that they went into law school thinking they really wanted to be a patent attorney and then they took a criminal law class and they decided they liked criminal law. So there's so much that I don't know that I haven't decided yet gotcha. if I even get to that point. Gotcha. Um, and are you able to talk about your internship at all with the DA? I can talk about what my general duties were. I mean, I guess that internship was really about learning process and how everything operated. I got a lot of courtroom observation time. Um, I learned a lot about how the Victim Advocacy Office operates and the important things that they do for people who find themselves, um, unfortunately, as victims of crime. Um, but a lot of it was, and the purpose of me taking that internship was to learn some of that operational stuff. What would working as a lawyer look like every day? Um, I think I got that experience, but it didn't did working as a lawyer seem appealing to you? Or? Yeah, it's just that investment that makes me hesitate. And I don't want to jump in without being sure. Gotcha, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and what exactly is victim advocacy? Because I don't know what that is. Um, so basically, victim advocacy or a victim advocate is somebody who helps guide a victim through the process. So depending on what happened guides how the process works and what kind of hearings and court dates and whether or not somebody has to testify. Um, a lot of that is really complicated and somewhat confusing, especially to people who have had no experience with the system. 
um, what all of that means and where it's going and what to do next is so it's basically helping people get through that system. Okay, so you you said you're really proud to have worked with the AmeriCorps, um, and what so what is the AmeriCorps and why are you so so proud to have uh, worked with it? So I went into Maine Conservation Corps or AmeriCorps right after my freshman year of college. It was a big point of, I'd say, growing up for myself. I don't think I'd really grown out of high school. I hadn't grown out of being like a young adult. Um, I hadn't had a lot of real world experience. I lived on campus. I didn't have a job. Oh, during my freshman year of college, I didn't work. Um, I didn't really have a lot of responsibilities because when you're a freshman in college, you go to the the cafeteria and they make all your food for you and they do your dishes and then you go back to a dorm that somebody else cleans. So I didn't have a lot of those responsibilities and I also had not really been on my own. I had been with my parents and then you have a freshman roommate and I just hadn't had too many experiences where I was 100% by myself. So that was really much, excuse me, really growing up for me. And essentially that was because the program I was in, you get put, not necessarily in backcountry, but wilderness situations for a week and a half at a time. So you work for nine days, you're off for five, and you're staying at your job site, or within close proximity to your job site. So you are disconnected from everything like running water, um, phone service, refrigeration, living inside, electricity. You don't have any of those things. And that was the first time that I'd gone without those things for that period of time. And despite those challenges and despite that I was in a transition sort of stage, I felt like I did a really good job at not only the work I did, but how I did it. And what do, it sounds just like a camping trip. Is there like, what kind of work do you do for them? Oh, camping trips are fun, okay? Camping trips, you like go on a little hike and you see some birds and maybe moose if you're lucky, but... Um, in AmeriCorps, my first term, I was building stone structures. So we were digging rocks out of the ground, sending them downhill, and making staircases out of them. Although that is fun, after a while, at first you sit there and you say, why am I rolling rocks downhill? Why am I digging a hole in the side of a mountain? It's tough work. Um, the first job site that I went to was a, I think, like 50-minute hike in and it was like 200 stone stairs that we had to climb every morning just to get to the job site. And there were definitely, there was a day when I cried. There was a day when I cried, I'll be honest. Um, when I was just so frustrated and it had been raining for I think five days, so I was out of dry socks, which sounds silly, but never in my life had I been out of dry socks. Like that's so simple, you wake up every morning, you put on dry socks, but I was straight up out of dry socks. And there's no more I want to say humbling, but it's really just sad feeling. Like, I don't have any dry clothes. <laughs> and that's not fun. Camping is fun. If you're camping and it rains, you can go to a hotel down the street. But you can't do that. You couldn't do that in that program. You had to keep going. So what, what were they building the stone steps for? I'm still trying to, to grasp really what AmeriCorps does for, you know, like the greater community. You said Maine Conservation Corps. So there are so many different AmeriCorps programs all over the country. The one that I did was Maine Conservation Corps. So we did trail building. So the trail that I, a lot of the trails I worked on were washed out by rain, drainage, um, and just needed to be rebuilt. It sounds 
really fulfilling. It sounds like a fulfilling job. I've, I've actually never heard of AmeriCorps, but it sounds like something I would love to get involved in in the future, um, for sure. Have you worked on any other job sites? Like, what are the additional job sites you've worked on since the Stone Steps? So my first term was really all stone work. Um, right. So stone steps, stepping stones, that sort of deal. Um, my second term was timber work. So chainsaw work, log bridges, timber bridges, you know, kind of both. And what, the other thing that was interesting was that a lot of times you're working with found materials. So you're digging the rocks out of the ground or you're using a tree that fell. Um, so you're using what's around you instead of, some, a lot of times we did bring in wood, but especially the stones, pretty much all of them we had found within the vicinity. And is that, do some people do that as their full-time job, or is it all a volunteer basis? There are some people who do it as, I have friends who were in AmeriCorps, Main Conservation Corps, and now have full-time positions doing that. I know a portion of the Appalachian Trail in Maine is maintained by all volunteers. It kind of varies. It's, there are opportunities to do it full-time. I think I had my experience and learned my lessons of, like, the working place where I can so, most days. Yeah, most days for sure. And you said you're really proud to have been a part of that. Where did that pride come from? Just you know, seeing the fruits of your labor, seeing things come into existence that you built, or was it something else? Out of all the pictures I had in my head of my time, especially my first term, I worked with some absolutely brilliant, fantastic people um, who are responsible. I think a lot of how I grew and even who I am now essentially they taught me a lot of lessons and I don't think in any way shape or form I would be the same human that I am today without them and if I go through all those pictures in my head of that experience I don't see the structures I built that was a great part of it but that's not what's in my head when I think about why am I proud of that experience what's in my head when I think about why I'm proud of that experience it's those days when it was pouring rain where I did not want to get out of my tent, but I got out anyway. They're the days when I really questioned whether I could do it, and I did it. And there are pictures of just being with people and not having phones. And I'm sorry to go back to that, but not having those distractions that really allowed us to focus on what we were doing why we were doing it and how we were doing it because as I've had subsequent positions and internships I've really learned it's not so much what you know because I learned a lot of material in college don't get me wrong but it's really how do you complete tasks do you do it efficiently do you do it independently do you do it do you work well collaboratively it's how do you approach it and how do you present yourself more than it is the material you know and I think I learned a lot of that when I was in America. right a lot of people have you know doubts about uh, the American education system, well, educate the educational system in general, and one of those doubts is that, you know, there's kind of an old school feeling, a teacher stands up in front of the class, gives a lecture, maybe there's some group interaction, um, you read out of a textbook, you take notes from a PowerPoint, maybe you're in a lab, uh, or maybe you get to be part of some kind of seminar, um, but one thing that I think is glaring within the uh, educational system is the lack of experiences that students get throughout their time in uh, in college and in high school even. And it sounds like the AmeriCorps helped you find some of those experiences that helped you grow. Uh, do you think that experience is something that's lacking within the educational system? 
I think to have those experiences like you're talking about have value, they need to be something that people want to do. I think part of the reason that program was so valuable is because I wasn't getting graded. When I sit in the classroom now, I think about, okay, what are the requirements of this assignment and how do I do well on it? How do I get that good grade so I can justify all this money I'm spending on tuition? So if I was getting graded on that experience, I don't think it would have been half as valuable. Um, I think to make those experiences valuable, they need to be something you want to do. So I think that letting those things be volunteer positions or internships or jobs, I think is good so people can get in the vein of things that they really love and want to do. Cool. Um, I, I definitely agree with that. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, a previous interview I gave, the last interview I gave was to a guy named Jay Adeltine. And one of his points that he brought up, one of his quotes that he used was, discomfort equals growth, or discomfort fosters growth. Do you think that the discomfort you, you felt in the AmeriCorps has helped you grow? Absolutely. I haven't had a job interview or even just casual career conversation with anybody without mentioning it. And I don't do that on purpose. It's just that it was something that was completely out of my comfort zone, but I was at a point in my life when I was like, well, why not? I don't have anything to lose. I have a summer, and this is a good experience, and I made very little money, because you can, um, what do they call it, a living stipend, which worked out to very, very little, but it was worth it um, for a lot of different reasons. So you did it on and off for a whole summer, or just that um, was your, your whole job the whole summer? That was my whole job the whole summer. You worked nine days, had five off, so it was a two-week cycle. Okay. Um, bringing it back to your college career, you suffered a pretty bad concussion your sophomore year, um, and you must have received help from the Student Accessibility Services at Clark. Um, is that what drove you to help out with that, and are you still active in that? So I think that experience was another turning point. Not turning point, but pivot point, where I looked at things a little differently. Um, I got my concussion, I think, on, I want to say it was August 21st. I had to fill out a lot of paperwork for it. Right, yeah. Um, and at the time that I was diagnosed with a concussion, they told me two to six weeks, you'll be great. Um, it turned out to be more like three months. So that was hard because I am very driven. I am also a little bit, sometimes I definitely work too hard and I don't know when to stop. So I would do my readings until I had a terrible headache. And that's part of the reason it took so long for me to recover was I didn't know when to stop and say, Sarah, put it away. Um, and I think those mistakes I wanted to share with people and say, hey, if you're having a bad day and for whatever reason, whatever you're dealing with, you need to take a break and come back to it, do that. Um, I think another wrinkle to that was that, so I got my concussion at the end of August and my grandmother passed away in early October that year. So that made it even harder. So I think that pivot point was losing a lot of what I thought I knew. So I thought, oh, I'll always, I'll always do well in school because I know I work really hard. And that's not true, I got a concussion and it was awful and it made it really hard to do schoolwork. That wasn't true anymore. And then my grandmother passed away, so this big structure of family that I've always had growing up that was always very stable and always there for me. It's like, oh, that's not permanent either. And I knew that, like you know people, people leave your life in different ways, but I didn't experience that until that day. So a lot of that changed, but that was good because I learned that, I learned to not take things for granted. Yeah, for sure. Um, how did you get your concussion? Just Oh, like silly story. Um, <laughs> so it was my second term in AmeriCorps, and I think it was my last week. 
it, was, it must have been my last week, um, or second to last week. Anyway, it was like quarter to 12, and lunchtime was 12. And like, if I don't have a snack and I'm hungry, like, you do not want to talk to me. I'm a very hangry person. And I was hungry, and it was almost lunchtime, and I was not paying attention. And we were carrying in wood, and I had it, I think, on my right shoulder. And they were like 8 to 12 foot um, planks. So I had one end on my shoulder, and then my one of my team members had the other end on his shoulder. And I went to go through it over my head, and I caught the back of my head underneath my helmet. And I didn't end up going to the emergency room for three days. So I worked on a concussion and kept my blood pressure up, which increases the, the damage um, from my understanding of concussions. But, yeah, so I hit myself in the head with a piece of wood by accident. <laughs> my face are <laughs> I don't even really know what to say about that, but it's okay. It's just well, a, it's just, I guess, a stroke of bad luck. Yeah. Um, yeah, it sounds like so. You had a pretty tough sophomore year then. Yeah, the first semester was really tough. Yeah. Do you think you did? No, something? that was junior year. I'm sorry, that was junior year. So you had the concussion sophomore year. Um, so first, so I did my first term between freshman and sophomore. I did my second term between sophomore and junior, and the second term between sophomore and junior was when I got my concussion. So first semester was junior. And then your grandmother passed away in October. October. Yeah. Okay. And so you you're connecting with those those other peers who also have concussions, or did you work with students with other uh, injuries? So I signed up for the program just for any student. They do some kind of matching that I don't understand. Um, any student. I mean, something that really got me was that. And I'd heard this term before, but invisible injury. Um, things like a concussion are an invisible injury. You don't have a cast on your leg to walk around with. And some of the um, accessibility challenges that some students deal with in that office are also invisible in a sense. Like they're not an injury that you can see. So then people feel like they're not justified in struggling with them, or they feel like um, you know they're not deserving of whatever it is, or things like that, which are really sad, because those things, and not sad, it's not the word I'm supposed to use, but, um, but I guess I felt that pressure, because I would have to explain, hey, I have a concussion, but nobody can see it, so it's harder for people to understand, so people kind of push you more, or they don't, like I tell someone in a group project, hey, I really need a couple days of having a really bad couple days of headaches, and they say they understand, but then keep pushing, because if I had a cast on my leg, they'd probably understand, so from my understanding, um, that was a similar experience, um, so that was kind of why I came back. Are you allowed to talk about any of those invisible injuries that you came up against? No? Okay. And you also spoke about how you almost pushed yourself too hard and they probably lengthened your concussion and made it worse. Do you think you learned from that at all, or are you still in that boat where you kind of push yourself? I'm learning. Yeah. I'm learning. Um, I think that I'm still definitely, I'm doing a lot better about that this year. So I kind of taught myself, okay, working three jobs almost full time on top of your senior year of college is really hard. And that wasn't made it really hard for me to especially go home and spend time with my family on the weekends. Um, so this year I said, okay, I'm going to try to work a schedule where I don't have to work weekends. So I've kind of walked back my work commitments, and I've been able to do that um, in part to some other people. 
who have kind of guided me and said, hey, Sarah, maybe you should do some Jason Card. So I got lucky enough where I've been able to uh, only work during the weekdays and have my weekends off. So I am learning. I'm doing better. Um, and I think I'm walking back some of my extracurricular commitments a little bit this year, too, so I can focus on my master's research requirement and applying for jobs this winter. So I'm, I'm learning. Okay. Not there yet. And what, Probably won't ever get there. But. Yeah, it's definitely a process. Um, what, what three jobs were you working your senior year? I was serving in a restaurant on the weekends. I was working in an office on campus on the weekdays. And then I was nannying for a family to get their kids off to school in the mornings. So on Fridays, I would get up at 5.30 and get the kids off to school that morning, then go to my own classes all day, and then waitress all night, and then go back and waitress on Saturday. So when did you do homework? I don't know the answer to that question. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it all got done. I graduated. But. Yeah. And what kind of research are you doing for your grad education? So I'm focusing on the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument in um, northern central Maine. And basically, national monuments are conservation areas that can be declared via executive order if the land is somehow donated to the federal government. So the fact that it can be created via executive order and there's no requirement for democratic process or public involvement creates a lot of conflict. So I dealt with that in my undergraduate research, and then I'm continuing that work in graduate research. That sounded really confusing, honestly. So do you study how the, how the ownership of the land is dealt with or how it's taken care of? What's, what's your role? So I'm looking at the effect that that process has on public opinion and communities. And then I'm also looking at um, the impacts of tourism on the environment. Because the idea in northern central Maine is that a lot of these paper mill and timber industries are declining. So replacing that part of um, the economy loss with tourism is now what's thought to going to be the thing that's going to save these people who lost jobs in um, timber and paper manufacturing. So I'm looking at kind of the social um, aspects of that. So will these provide good jobs for people? And will the environment be effectively conserved if tourism is basically um, frequent in that area? Having done so much research in, or ha having done so much work in conservation, how do you feel about tourism in Maine? Do, do you want it to boost the economy, or do you not feel, or do you feel as though they're going to hurt the environment as well? Maine couldn't live without it economically. Okay. I think that Maine's a beautiful state, and I'm glad that people go and visit and see some of the absolutely gorgeous things that Maine has to offer. Um, so I think economically it's a really good thing. I think socially it's a really good thing to let people see, see how great Maine is, right? Um, but I just, I'm looking at if those jobs that people were doing really well with in timber, man, uh, timber and paper manufacturing if they have the opportunity to do that well with the new tourism economy. Gotcha. And um, you said you're not as involved with the student support network at all, and, and that's different from the peer mentorship. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to talk about that at all? Sure. So the student support network was basically 
through the Center for Counseling and Personal Growth at Clark that helped, I don't even remember how I ended up in that group. Um, but we talked about various common mental health struggles on campus and how to not necessarily identify those in our peers, but uh, recognize when our peers need connection to help. So if a peer is really struggling with depression, anxiety, eating disorders, things like that, um, how we guide them to get help. Because you can't just tell someone who's struggling, go get help, go to counseling services. No, I mean, that's not really the best way to help somebody get where they need to go. So we talked a lot about those topics. Um, and my first year in it was definitely the first run of the program. So I really enjoyed what I learned, and I think I still carry that with me. Um, but again, it's one of those commitments that I've had to <laughs> be smart about stepping back so I have time to do my own work and apply for jobs. <laughs> yeah, I completely understand that. Um, it sounds like you're interested in a whole bunch of subjects from law or the justice system uh, to the environment to you know mental health, uh, yeah, the mental health industry. Uh, one of the things that I, my mom teaches at a school for emotionally disturbed kids, and she's a special ed teacher there, so she deals with what you probably call invisible injuries. I let's refer to them as injuries. Um, and how much, how much contact, did you come into a lot of contact with that when you were in the Student Support Network? I think Conditions. people don't realize how commonplace, um, especially on college campuses, people struggling with mental health is. I don't know if I worded that correctly, but um, I think a lot of times people are afraid to ask for help or they're afraid to tell people they're struggling, especially on a college campus where people can feel like it's a really competitive environment. And if they don't show that they can do it 110%, um, that they're not going to do well. So I think that was touched upon a little bit. Maybe not with those exact words, but it was definitely similar material. Yeah, for sure. I, I One of the things I've learned in terms of being at college is, yes, it is extremely competitive. At a small university, it's probably even more so the appearance of that, um, that it is competitive and that people are – you know, always on their A-game, always on top of their stuff, always giving 110%. And um, a lot of guests I've had on the show uh, here have talked about the importance of not comparing yourself to other people. How important do you think that ideal is to this whole, you know, super, almost super ultra-competitive academic, like, bubble that we, that we have at college? I think you got to swim in your own lane. One of the quotes that I gave you, the one about um, success is only measured by two questions. Did I do everything I needed to do? And now my But I think you're the only person who can really give yourself an honest accounting of how well you did. I mean, I, I think I'm the only person who really knows whether or not I gave 110%. Um, so I think you, I think measuring yourself to other people, I mean, you should make sure that you're going to your classes and you're meeting your requirements and all that stuff. But I think in terms of comparing yourself to other people, there's always going to be somebody in the room who has more experience or had a higher GPA or got a higher grade on that paper. No matter where you go, there's always going to be that person. So it's kind of um, futile to try to 
try to always be the best because there's always going to be somebody who knows more or has more experience. Yeah. And after seeing, helping, I should say, helping people with, you know, anxiety or depression or, you know, I don't, did you work with anybody with ADD or anything like that as well? Okay, how how stifling can that be to a college student? Like, how how much can it can it hurt them from, I guess, succeeding or doing what they want to do in a college environment? You mean having? I don't understand your question. Like, but comparing themselves to others is stifling, or more or less. So, my question would be is. I don't have anxiety per se, so it's really hard for me to understand what it's like to have any type of anxiety, whether it be social anxiety or or other. Yeah. How large an effect can you know anxiety have on a person's time at college? Can it really detract a, a ton? Can it only detract a little bit? Can they be completely, totally ignore it? I, I'm not really sure how bad it could get. I think the only, I can't speak to anybody else's experience. Um, I think in general in the rest of the world um, that those experiences are really challenging for people. Um, but I don't think in any way, shape, or form, I mean, you know, yeah, I can't speak to anybody else's experience, but um, I do have friends even from high school who had those challenges. And I had very close friends from high school who I was super close with. Like we pretty much, I mean, the town I grew up in is the kids you went to kindergarten with were the kids you graduated with. There wasn't really a lot of moving or new people. It was kind of small. And even though I'd known these people for years, they didn't want to talk about it. I was like, I'm your friend. You can talk to me. But they still didn't want to talk about it. So I think that stigma um, I've seen impairs some of my friends. So is that the biggest hurdle you think that is faced? Is just, you know, opening the conversation up about it? Um, I think that hurdle is different for different people. Um, yeah, I think it's different for different people in different contexts. That makes sense. Uh, all right, moving to like a little bit brighter of a of a topic, I would say. <laughs> do you have Do you have any role models? My dad um, and uh, I love Cheryl. Cheryl's great, but um, I think a lot of people in my family. However you want to answer the question. I've had people answer, um, you know, certain people. I've had uh, them answer, you know, one person. I've had them identify uh, certain traits that they okay. like in certain people. So however you, uh, however you use the word role model, if you use it at all, who would you pick? But, you know, your dad is one of them. I think my dad's a big one. I think something I really admire about my dad is that he's very, most of the time, I'd say 90 Six percent of the time is very calm and cool and collected, even when stuff really goes wrong. Um, like I remember being a kid, and I think we were flying to Disney, and he got stopped for the we were going through the security, and he got stopped for like the extra bag check, and we almost missed the plane. And I was a kid, and I was going to Disney, and I was like upset that my dad was going to miss the plane. And I remember we got on the plane thinking, oh, he'll just catch the next one, um, and we missed it. And I was all upset that my dad wasn't going, and he just showed up, and he's like, oh, I'm here, I'm here now, kid. I was like, oh, okay, I guess you're not stressed about it. I won't be stressed about it. Like, um, I'm definitely not that comfortable and collected. I'm a little bit more uptight. Yeah. Um, 
And I think my, I think another thing I really admire about my dad is that he just keeps rolling. No matter what happens, he just keeps rolling. Um, even when stuff gets really hard, he just keeps rolling. And I think I've picked that up from him quite a bit. Um, even if I am a little bit more stressed out, I still try to keep rolling. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, we actually, I completely forgot about the quote thing okay. that when we started. Can you talk about Cheryl's trade? So I finished Cheryl's book, um, her book Wild, a few months after I finished my first term at Maine Conservation Corps, after, I, after I'd had my kind of wilderness education. And her book is all about how a lot of her life essentially fell apart. She got divorced. She, her mother passed away of cancer. Um, she had a substance abuse problem. She lost, um, her family kind of disintegrated with her mom's passing. So a lot of things fell apart for her. And her reset was hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. She hiked a thousand miles of the Pacific Crest Trail by herself. Um, so I kind of identified with that reset of stepping back, going outside, and taking a break essentially from life. Um, and a lot of the way she writes resonates in my brain. I think she writes the same way I think. So that's part of the reason I like her. But she also is rather unapologetic and honest about her experiences. Um, she has a podcast that gets released every Saturday morning. And I like eagerly await it and refresh my podcast feed waiting for it. Um, but she is very honest and she'll tell the truth even if it's inconvenient and it's uncomfortable. She'll just say it. And how did you find her book? It was suggested to me by somebody um, in the conservation I'll have to read it. You will. Would you suggest it to anybody? As a uh, yeah. <laughs> she has two that I would really suggest. It's Wild, which is her memoir kind of narrative about her hike on the Pacific Crest Trail. And then Tiny Beautiful Things, which is, it sounds kind of corny, but she wrote an advice column for a little bit. But it is not a corny advice column. It's a very, it's some of her excerpts from that, her favorite letters that she received, of these really difficult life situations that people write in about that I couldn't even imagine being in that are really complicated and uncomfortable, and she just speaks the truth about it, and I just really appreciate that about her. That's cool. And is an advice column found in a newspaper? How, did you find that as well, or did you find the book first? How, did, how are you introduced to her? So I went from Wild, and then I looked up her other books and found Tiny Beautiful Things. The advice column was online on some writer's website or something. I've never read the actual column, but... And is she just an author, or has she done other things? Um, she writes. I think she's still writing. She also um, has a book called Brave Enough, and that's her a book of Cheryl quotes. So it's like my happy place. I think she's still writing, and she does her podcast, and she does a lot of activism stuff. And just to go back to the quotes a little bit, um, I'll repeat them if you need me to. Um, oh, I have them memorized. Don't worry. Okay. Except when I slipped up a few minutes ago. That's, that's okay. Um, and you, you know the one that said nobody's going to do life for you. Why do you find that so valuable? And do you do you use it on a daily basis? Do you come back to it sometimes? Do you just appreciate it? How do you use that? I think that's one of my mantras that I say to myself. Um, like when I that moment I described to you about the wet socks. Nobody was going to bring me dry socks. Okay, if I sat there and cried all day, it was not going to make the dry socks come to me. I had to just keep going. And I think even though that's kind of a funny example, it's emblematic of a lot of life when you're just like, oh my god, I don't know what to do. I'm so overwhelmed. You just have to take 
one step at a time and keep learning. Awesome. Well, that's really cool. I, I actually, now that you say that, I can't read your, can't wait to listen to her podcast to read her book. Um, I'll have to get pretty well acquainted with somebody who sounds like she's gone through a lot of, a lot of stuff and come out on on the right side of things. I would say. We talked about outdoors. Um, all right. So another question that I have is, what's one thing you believe that everybody else thinks is crazy? <laughs> um, what have other people said? <laughs> I've actually never asked that one before. Oh boy, so yeah. I'm the guinea pig. Um, I'd say a lot of people, I think, when I talk about wilderness and being outside, or even just car camping as being a reset, a lot of people don't really believe me. Um, not because they haven't had those experiences, but because I think they look at it differently. So they're not quite sure how sleeping in a tent does anything for you. Okay. Um, I think some people are skeptical of that, which is fine. I mean, other people do things differently. Not everybody's made to be outside. Other people are a little like, are you sure about that? <laughs> but One of the hurdles that I would say, you know, it sounds like you could just, you personally, you could just throw on a backpack, pick up a tent, just start hiking in the woods, and just be all right. You would be okay. Uh, one of the hurdles that I would have is I don't really know how to do that. I've never been taught how to live outside. I did, like, Cub Scouts when I was little, but... Uh, you know, if I just picked up a backpack, threw some water in it, threw some clothes in it, grabbed a tent, I don't know if I would be able to keep myself going out there, you know, find food or whatever. Yeah. Well, I was packing my food. I'm not at the stage where I'm like, survivor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can't be on survivor yet. Maybe someday. But um, I hope my sister listens to that because I don't really care. But um, <laughs> when I started, I was at that point. I think I'd maybe gone car camping once. Yeah. And I still have friends who are way more experienced than I am, who know so much more than I know. Um, and it is a learning curve just like everything else. But um, that's, where I, that's where I started. And, you know, I liked it. Not everybody will. Yeah. Um, but that, I'm just speaking about my experience. So. If somebody wanted to try it, how would you suggest they start? Start with a group of people. Do not go anywhere outside by yourself without telling people where you're going. If you've never gone hiking before, don't go by yourself. Basic wilderness rules. <laughs> um, but you'd be surprised at how many people don't tell people where they're going. Um, I would suggest a program like Maine Conservation Corps because it is, it's harder to back out. I mean, I did have thoughts about backing out. I'm not going to lie. Um, but you're in a program and you're committed and you're on the small payroll. So you're a little more stuck in it and it's a little harder to retreat. Um, but you could start with just going on hikes. There are so many places, nature centers, that just have little hikes. And even that, the other night, I went on just like a little walk around in the woods with some friends. And even that just helped me feel a little refreshed after the first week of graduate school and a little better about being able to handle everything. Yeah. Um, but definitely start with people who are experienced if you have friends. Um, or just start very gently. Don't go gung-ho and go, I'm going to go backpacking. Don't do, that. Don't do that. I mean, Cheryl like did the PCT with no experience. I'm not advocating for that, but um, yeah, just be gentle on yourself. All right. So, my last question, which you may or may not um, want to answer, is a scenario question. 
And um, it's called The Three Truths. And the idea is that you're on your deathbed and or, or near the end of your life. And you're surrounded by your friends and family. And everything that you've done up until that point, all of your recordings, anything you've written, anything you've posted, uh, they've all been erased. Your, your legacy, per se, is gone. And your friend or your family member hands you a piece of paper and a pen and says, uh, Sarah, write down three things that you know to be true that will be left behind and that people can learn from you. Do you know what your three truths are? It took a while, but I got them. Um, so the first one would be take initiative. Initiative is my favorite word. If you see something that can be done, just do it. Don't push yourself too hard. But if you're at an internship and you know that your boss really needs something done and you have the chance to do it, just take initiative. Do everything you can. Always be aware of what's going on around you and how you can do better. The second one, I would say, is forgive yourself when you make mistakes. Something that I'm very happy that my family drilled into me was always just keep your feet on the ground. Always. I wrote on my graduation cap um, for graduation. It's a country song, so forgive me. Um, Hello, country. Oh, good, good. <laughs> I'm not the only one. I thought I was the only one on this campus. Um, but just always stay humble and kind. So just always... Keep your feet on the ground. Yes, you know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. But just always be humble and forgive yourself. Don't be too, and I'm very much bad at this, but um, be gentle on yourself even when you make mistakes. Because beating yourself up over something over and over and over and over and over again doesn't accomplish anything. And you keep yourself accountable, but also know that you forgive yourself. Um, and I'd say my third one is trust your gut. Um, there's another Cheryl quote that I didn't give you. That's just too long. But, um, you got time. Oh, no. If you if you think you can remember it. Oh no, I don't want to recite it. Um, okay. <laughs> but just trust your gut. Yeah. I had a friend come to me for advice a few weeks ago um, about somebody breaking up with them or the end of a relationship or something like that. And my advice is just trust your gut. If this doesn't feel right to you, don't do it. Just get out. If this isn't making you happy, just go. And that's hard, that's easy for me to say, and it's really hard for some. For somebody to do but just always trust your gut if you don't like something or if you do like something just trust your gut if you're doing something that you know you shouldn't do and I'm not saying in a bad way but if you're taking a class that you're like yeah I hate this course material but I feel like I have to say that just change it um, and don't be afraid to trust your gut in good and bad ways because I think as somebody who's pushed myself so hard when I get to a place where I feel good about what I'm doing I don't trust my gut that what I'm doing is good, and I keep going, and I keep pushing myself, and I kind of question it. So just trust your gut and go with the flow. So I actually have a question about that, trust your gut a little bit. Sure. Is, um, you know, what I was thinking of when you said it was the way that you got involved with the Maine Conservation Corps, and you, you know, you got there, and you felt some resistance towards it. You, 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 you say you didn't want to be there, you know, initially initially but in the end looking back you said you loved it it's, it's helped you grow and there's been a number of beneficial things from it do you think that if you would have trusted your gut and could have left that you would have and it would have been the wrong decision like when do you my question is when do you know to stick it out there's a difference between a gut feeling and a reflex 
um, that response to that program of getting out was a reflex. That was, oh my god, this is a new environment with new things, and I'm sure that all of my nice, clean, straight out of LL Bean backpacking gear makes me look interesting, and everybody knows that I'm green at this. But that was very much a reflex. And my gut feeling was, you don't have anything to lose, just see where this goes. So I think that that's a good distinction to make, um, and I'm glad you asked that. Because one thing my dad told me is when you're going through a hard time, um, both the highs and the lows are artificial. So in a tough situation like that, the low of, oh my god, I want to get out, is artificial. The high of, like, everything's going to be great and awesome, and life is just wonderful 12 out of 10, that's artificial too. So I think knowing that the truth is somewhere in the middle and that there's a difference between a knee-jerk reaction and a gut feeling. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing those things. Before we finish things up here, I want to acknowledge you for, I want to acknowledge you for a whole bunch of things, but I'm going to keep it short. The first thing that I would like to acknowledge you on is your your sense of being grateful. Um, you really don't take anything for granted, and I've heard, you know, little sayings like, if you can recall three things that you're grateful on a daily basis, it makes you a happier person, and things like that, little tiny, little, like, I guess, positivity uh, resets, let's call them, and um, you don't really take anything for granted, and you're grateful for not only things within the wilderness, um, but within you know certain areas of life. So in academics or with you know in the wilderness, you're grateful for Maine, but you also uh, have things that you're thankful for within Worcester. Um, the next thing is I want to acknowledge how much, just how much you value family. And it sounds like you're extremely close to your family, but the way you speak about your friends also makes it sound as though they're your family as well. So, you know, the broader respect of the word family. So friends and family uh, and, and how much trust you have in them and how much you value that, that bond that you share with them. And the last thing that I want to acknowledge you on is, is just time without technology, which sounds trivial, but um, in this day and age, and especially in our environment, uh, so many people rely upon that phone or you know a different screen that they're super dependent on and for someone to to not only advocate for time without technology but really know the value of time without technology is um, something that I would I personally can't say I've experienced because I've never gone on like a really long camping trip or anything like that but I, ne I don't necessarily love my phone. Like, I think I can see the appeal in it, and I would really like to experience that sometimes. So it's nice to have someone who can speak about it from firsthand experience and values it like you do. Um, and that's about it, unless you have anything else that you want to add really quick. I think I made fun of myself enough. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, um, this is my last episode. What? Of my podcast, yeah. It's episode, episode 10, yeah. And so I want to leave all my listeners and uh, anybody else who valued Sarah's time today um, with what I always leave you guys with. And for the last, but, but maybe not final time, trust your process.